a sermon from Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. It is, I think, undoubtedly his most famous sermon, even if you never grew up in the church. You've probably heard something about the Sermon on the Mount before in your life. Um, Interestingly enough, the Sermon on the Mount only really occurs in Matthew's Gospel. We have, you know, different parts of it finding its way into other Gospels. So you'll hear some of the same language, even, honestly, even into James's letter. If you've noticed, there's a lot of crossover, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, between what James is saying, which would make sense as the brother of Jesus, and what Jesus uh, tells us here in, in Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It spans three chapters in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, uh, 6, and 7. And um, the sermon covers a lot of territory, especially in terms of situational ethics. And so uh, the sermon has a lot of case studies in terms of, you know, little, little one-liners about different things that seems to jump around a little bit. But I would tell you this, if, if, if you're like me and you really need an overview of what's going on, um, all, of Je- all, all that Jesus wants to say in the Sermon on the Mount can be summarized by what we have in the banners here. Um, and that's right here as a part of the sermon from Matthew 6.33, and that is these words, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is this, of all the things that are available for you this morning to seek, and there are many, of all the things that are, all the goods that are appealing for you to chase after. Jesus is telling you that the kingdom of God, that is the rule of God, or the reign of God, that should be the primary horizon of your life. Knowing God, life with God, the kingdom of God, should be the goal of all that you are as a human being. The rest of his sermon revolves around that. And that's what we're studying this morning. That's what we're studying this semester. How is it that we as men make God the very goal of our lives? Let's continue reading this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. See if we can learn something new together. Jesus says here in Matthew 5, Again, you have heard heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the very throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for um, your word to us this morning. It was meant for us. We pray, God, that you would make us good listeners. Um, We ask, Father, for change, real change in our lives, and we pray to that end that you would give us more of your Son. Father, help us to see where we need to see ourselves this morning in the story that you're telling about his life and his death and his resurrection. And we pray, by the power of your Spirit, that you would awaken us to new mercies. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a, a joke this morning to get the blood flowing. Like we need some mental exercises, some stretching. Consider this your calisthenics this morning. All right? Reaching the end of a job interview, a human resource officer asks uh, a young engineer, fresh out of MIT, uh, what starting salary are you looking for, young man? What are you looking for? What kind of compensation do you believe that you are worth starting out of this company? A young man looks at the interviewer and says, I'm, I think I'm worth in the neighborhood of $130,000 a year, depending, of course, on the benefits package. The interviewer says, well, what would you say to a package of five weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and full dental covered, a company matching retirement plan up to 50% of your salary, and a company car leased every two years, say a BMW, in the color of your choice. How does that sound? The engineer sits straight up and says, wow, are you kidding me? The human resource officer says, yes, but you started it. (laughs) I thought that was good. I thought that was a good, I didn't say it was a good joke, I said it was a joke. We're all warming up this morning, right? Point is this, sometimes we can set our sights too high, right? Set our sights a little too high. Um, especially in terms of what we believe that the world owes us or what we think we can expect out of life. Sometimes we can set our sights too high. The opposite is also true. Sometimes we can set our sights too low. What I want to ask you this morning is, could it be true that often we set our sights too low when it comes to our own righteousness? Could it be that we often set our sights too low when it comes to the contribution of our character for the good of the world. Not what the world would give us, but what we have ourselves, in ourselves, to offer the world in terms of truth and beauty and goodness. When Jesus uses the word righteousness, I want you to think of it like this. That has a lot of maybe religious baggage for you. Think of righteousness as the rightness of who God wants us to be made in his image. Righteousness is the uprightness of our character in terms of who God has created us and made us to be as the very image bearers of Him. And you can see from our passages this morning that we just read, and from the passages, if you've been here, that Paul has taught on the last two weeks that Jesus Himself cares deeply about the excellence of who we are as human beings. Really, a summarizing verse in this section goes back to chapter 5, verse 20. We've read it before two weeks ago. And and 
all of this section is, is just an explication of this verse. The verse reads like this, verse 20, chapter 5. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, unless your character surpasses in quality and in depth the exemplars of piety and devotion in that day, unless your character surpasses them, men, do you understand? You will never be fit for heaven. Never. And if you've been with us the whole time, you'll recognize that this at least feels experientially like a far cry from how Jesus began the sermon, right? Do you remember how he began his Sermon on the Mount? With the beatitude, with the blessing. He began, by, he began the Sermon on the Mount by offering heaven to the poor in spirit. Remember that? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, heaven is, is only for the weak. Heaven is only for the ashamed. Heaven is only for the empty hand. And when you're reading the sermon, in the beginning of the sermon, heaven sounds unbelievably generous. Right? It sounds amazingly indiscriminate. If you can hold out your hand before God and say, oh Lord, help me, then God will put heaven in your hand in return. It's amazing. And yet now Jesus says, unless the quality of your character is such that it goes far beyond these exemplars of piety and devotion, you will never be fit to live with God. And I want you to hear both of those because all of a sudden heaven sounds unbelievably restrictive, does it not? Impossibly demanding. And so really here's the question for us this morning. How do we do justice to both of those messages at the very same time. That is, as men who want to know God, how do we lean into the message of radical inclusivity that heaven is for the empty hand? And also at the very same time, the, 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 the message of radical demand that heaven is only for the holy of holies. How do we live with the bar being so low and so high at the very same time. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Honoring both the empty hand and the message that God calls you to be perfect as he is perfect. We're a little ahead of ourselves this morning, but here's, I think, the path that winds through the end of chapter 5. It would go something like this. I want you to see, first of all, Jesus' call to true righteousness. I want you to feel the weight of that. Jesus' call to true piety, true devotion, true righteousness. Second of all, I want you to see the clue to the source of how we become that way. How is it that we actually become the men that God describes? And then finally, I want you to see, I just want to say a few remarks at the end on how we actually get started. You know this, but when, when a challenge feels overwhelming, right, one of the most important questions is where do I even begin, right? So you've heard the question before, how do you eat an elephant? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So the point, you know, the point in that is that, yeah, you eat an elephant the same way you eat a donut, or three or four donuts, right? Whatever it looked like for you this morning. Yeah. 
You eat it one bite at a time. And you walk towards any horizon, no matter how near or how far that horizon is, the same way. You walk one step at a time. So what do those steps look like in your life? That's what I want us to look like at the very end, look at in the very end this morning. How do we step towards true righteousness? Well, first, the call to true righteousness. You could say it like this, that true righteousness, you see it even in Matthew 6.33, is really the summary of the sermon from here on out. And you'll remember that Jesus said to us at some point early on in the sermon, he said, look, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And his point there is that, um, is that God actually intends to love his creation through you. One of the ways that God intends to wrap his arms around the world and love the world is through you. And what Jesus was saying there is that we've got to get this, that even though the world rejects us, we are for the good of the world not to live against it. No matter if the world rejects us or not, we are actually here for the good of the world not to live against it. Well, how does that happen? How is it that God intends to love the world through us? And that's exactly what Jesus is fleshing out in the rest of the sermon. Jesus is saying that God intends to love the world through my followers as they grow up into his image. He intends to love the world through the true righteousness of his people. And so what is true righteousness? Well, you're going to see this next week, too, that Jesus spends much of chapters 5 and 6 contrasting true righteousness with the most alluring counterfeits of its day. He is contrasting, to show you what the true thing is, he is contrasting the true with the most influential counterfeits, the knockoffs of the day. So you know this, but often when you want to see, kind of show the authenticity of something that is truly remarkable, you'll hold up the real thing, right, alongside the knockoff. And you'll say to someone, well, you know, now can you see the difference? Can you see the difference now? Right? Before you go and give your wife that purse you bought her for the, her birthday off a street vendor in New York, before you give her that, let me show you the real thing. Now do you notice the cheapness in the stitching? <laughs> do you notice the thinness of the fabric? Do you notice the, the lack of quality in, in, in all the not-so-visible places? Beware before you give it to her. You got what you paid for. Right? This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's saying, let's just look, let's, let's examine the knockoff just for a moment. Okay? Notice that, that it really comes down, it comes down hard on murder and adultery. Wow. Right? Notice that it puts these stringent limits on divorce and stringent limits on honesty, oath-taking. I want you to notice that the knockoff version celebrates, it celebrates um, uh, the virtues of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and the virtues of safety. Yeah, love your own at home, but don't love those over there who might hurt you. Celebrates these things. It sounds honorable, and it sounds practical. And the knockoff version, here's the best part, the knockoff version can make you feel this morning like you're a pretty good person. But before you buy into it, Before you parade it, let me show you the real version for a moment. You'll notice that the real version not only condemns murder and adultery, but it also takes aim at the not-so-visible places in a man's heart. Lust and anger. The, The very places where a man's heart is stitched together. 
The real version doesn't just put limits on divorce and oath-taking. No, the real version pursues an extraordinary marriage. The real version is willing to say, look, if I say something, if you hear it come from my mouth, then I'm, I'm of such integrity that you can count on that thing to be done. And real righteousness doesn't just celebrate retribution and safety as the pinnacle of how to treat other people as human beings. No, the real version, the real version pursues the, the much harder works of mercy and love. And so what Jesus is doing here in chapter 5 is he's just like, he's holding up the true version alongside the knockoff version and saying, look, men, can you see the difference between the real thing now and the counterfeit? Can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see it in his words? And I will say to you this this morning with great confidence. I don't know all of you, but I think I can say this with confidence. You would not settle for the cheap version of anything in your life that you care deeply about. You wouldn't settle. And what Jesus is saying to you is don't settle for the cheap version in terms of your own character. Don't lower the bar. And don't use the religious language of grace to lower the bar or what you'll end up doing in the process is you'll cheapen grace just as you cheapen righteousness. Jesus never uses the language of grace to lower the bar in terms of what he wants you to become. So just for practical purposes for a moment, let me ask the question, well, how do I know if I've done that? How do I know if, if, if I, as a man, have, have bought into the cheap version, the knockoff version of righteousness? Well, here's how you know. Here's a good test. If you come to a place where you can say to yourself, you know, I'm really okay. I'm really okay. If you come to a place where you can say to yourself deep down, I'm a good person at heart. If you can say that with sincerity, then you know that you bought into the cheap stuff. Now I want to go one step further. If you come to a place where you not only say, you know what, deep down, I'm okay, but thank you, Jesus, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men who are sexually broken or other men who have dealt with marital failures or other men who have anger issues or other men who are less than honest in the way they do business. Thank you, Lord, that I am so different from other men. And God says, not only have you bought into the cheap version, but you are counting on the cheap version to make your case before God. And men, that is a dangerous, dangerous road. In fact, Jesus tells a story about a man who does this. It's a Pharisee. It's a really short story in Luke's Gospel. He goes up to the temple to pray. When he gets to the temple, he sees a morally unfit tax swindler right beside him. He looks at the tax swindler. The first thing he says, in great piety, Lord, thank you that I am not like him. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, that man walks down from the temple and he is rejected. His case is rejected before God. He is rejected before God because he bought into the cheap 
version. Look, you do not want the cheap version of righteousness to make your case before God. You don't want it. And so what are you saying? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying this, basically. You, whatever, your, whatever concept you have of discipleship, you cannot relax the demands of true righteousness ever. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. You can't do it. And I think you'll also find this, that nor can you expect that where you sit this morning, you can sufficiently meet those demands. You cannot relax the demands On the other hand, you can't sufficiently meet the demands. And so the question becomes, what gives? Really, this is the point this morning. This is the problem that we face. And and what hope do we have and where do we find that hope? Well, we find the hope actually in a strange place. Look with me at verse 48. It's how Jesus ends the section. Here's your hope this morning, man. You're going to love this. Be perfect (laughs) as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's your hope. Be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. What does God want from me? What does he want from me? Well, I'll tell you what he wants from you. (laughs) Be perfect. Oh, is that all? I'll tell you, it would be very easy, maybe some of you have done it before and just sort of skipped over it. It would be very easy to read verse 48 in the harsh, merciless tone of a perfectionistic God. It would be easy to hear uh, verse 48 in the the tone of, of perfectionism, but I want to show you this morning that as it reads, verse 48 is not the language of perfectionism at all. Why not? Perfectionism says this to you. Anything less than flawlessness is unacceptable. Anything less than flawlessness is unacceptable. Now maybe some of you heard that growing up from your parents. Maybe you heard that from teachers or coaches. Maybe, you've, maybe that's the recording playing in your own conscience over and over, and you oscillate between self-congratulation on one hand and shame on the other. Perfectionism basically says to you, here is the bar. It is as high as you can possibly get it. And if you don't reach that bar, then you need to see yourself as a failure. Now, it's easy to read the verse that way. It's easy to read it and say, look, you must get to God's level or he will never love you. He will never accept you. But what if, what if instead you read the verse in the opposite direction? Here's what I mean. Look there with me at verse 48. The verse is leading us to ask the question, what does it mean for God to be, to be called perfect and our Heavenly Father at the very same time? What does it mean for God to himself be called perfect and to be called at the very same time our Heavenly Father? Well, wouldn't it mean, wouldn't it mean that God in his own perfection, that he embodies all that he's already asked us to be? Wouldn't it mean that God has gone on record, he has a history of not resisting the one who was evil? Wouldn't it mean that God himself would have a record of being rejected by men himself? and yet not rejecting them in return? Wouldn't it mean that God would actually have an account, a historical account, where he willingly traveled two or three miles or even further than that into the abyss of death itself for all the ones who needed him to walk beside them? And what if God not only had a record of this? What if God himself not only had 
a record of this as an embodiment for us, but he did these things in such a way that he could be with us, that we might actually look at him this morning and call him our father. That God has not resisted us, though we resisted him. That we might call him our daddy. In other words, what if the very perfection of God has has become the refuge that God has provided for you in your own lack of perfection? I mean, that is not perfectionism. That is the way of a good father. The way of a good father says, come here, son. Come here. I want you to sit here and I want you to draw a perfect circle. A perfect circle. This is Lewis's example. Okay, the way of a good father is going to say, come here, I want you to come and draw a perfect circle, and if you don't draw the circle perfectly, then I will never be a father to you. Now, the way of a good father is to say, come here, son. Come learn from me. Watch me. Okay, now you try it. Okay, let me correct that a little bit. Now try it again. Now watch me again. Now do it again. Now, now try it again. And so on, and so on, and so on. And the father keeps working with his beloved son until they are both satisfied in joy that all that they can be has become actually all that they are. And I just want you to know that that is the tone of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, one of the, one of the unique features of the Sermon on the Mount is that, God, is that Jesus is teaching you in your discipleship to call on God as your father. Some of you, have, if you're new to Christianity or you're new to a Bible study, maybe you've heard at some point... Um, a prayer that starts, Our Father who art in heaven, this is where Jesus tells you to pray it. He's going he's gonna to continually push in your face that you have to learn how to not just call on God as your Father, but how to believe it in such a way that the Father has given you every resource you need to meet the Father's own demands. This really is the clue to how heaven can be both for the empty hand and for the Holy of Holies at the very same time. Here it is. Here's true grace. <laughs> You've maybe heard this before. Uh, uh, true grace is grace that welcomes you as you are into the presence of God. Welcomes you as you are into the very presence of God. And yet true grace says to you this morning, I love you so much that I will never let you stay that way. By whatever means possible. By whatever means necessary. I will not let you stay just as you are. I will work with you and be with you and love you. Every part of you until you are perfect, just as I am perfect. Okay? So where do you start? Seems like a long journey, doesn't it? Long way? How is it that you move towards the horizon? This morning, a perfect integrity and perfect mercy and perfect love. How do you move towards the horizon of be perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect? One step at a time, we said. What do those steps look like? What Jesus is describing here, and what he's really describing everywhere else in the Gospel, is an apprenticeship. You heard that word before, an apprenticeship, right? An apprenticeship, we don't use that word a lot anymore. We use words like internship, right? But an apprenticeship is a relationship in which a novice um, becomes like the one that he calls master, all right? A novice goes and submits himself, and he becomes like the one he, he calls master. Now, in this case, it's a much richer relationship because Jesus is teaching you to call your master not master, but what? Father. It's much richer, but it's no less than that. It's still an apprenticeship. And just think about it with me. Use your imagination for a moment. What is it 
that any apprenticeship requires, be, be learning to become a great cook, or speak a foreign language, or become an NFL quarterback. What, is a great, what does any apprenticeship require? What does it require? The most basic thing that any apprenticeship requires is the surrender of the apprentice to the master. So the apprentice goes to the master and he basically says to him, hey, here I am. Will you teach me? <laughs> and, and therein, the, the, the apprentice begins to surrender his time, so he spends a lot of time with the master, right? And the, and the apprentice begins to surrender his attention. He attends to what he's doing. He attends to who he is. He fixes his mind and his heart on those things. And the apprentice surrenders his judgments. That's huge. He no longer assumes that he knows better. That he knows the right thing to do. And if he doesn't, if the master says something that seems utterly confusing to the apprentice, what does the apprentice do? He says, your will be done. Your will be done. And often, in a very serious case, the, the apprentice not only surrenders his time and his attention and his judgments in one area of his life, but in a very serious case, the apprentice surrenders his very self. He gives his very self to the master and says, your will be done. How do you walk towards the horizon that is the kingdom of God? Well, men, you surrender. <laughs> you surrender. You come to Jesus with the empty hand and you say, will you walk with me? Lord, will you, will you show me the fullness, not the cheap version, the fullness of who you want me to be? And will you in your own perfection, as a father who would not spare any of his own resources, even at great pain to himself, would you in your own perfection, would you get me there? And I want you to hear this this morning. This is not just the first, the poverty of spirit line that Jesus gives you at the beginning of the sermon is not meant as the line to get you in. This is the, the, the whole journey. It is, this is the right, left, right, left, right, left of the Christian life. It is the daily battle of discipleship. It is the moment. It is the moment right now when you leave and right now as you're trying to listen. It is the moment uh, of trial for you. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, the real problem of the Christian life comes where most people do not usually look for it. It comes at the very moment that you wake up each morning. All of your wishes, all of your hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job a Christian has in the morning consists in shoving those things back. And shoving them back. And listening instead to that other voice. Taking that other point of view. Letting that other stronger, larger, quieter life come in. And then he says this, and so on all day. What is Lewis saying? The real battle in your life with God is the moment-by-moment -moment surrendering of your will to his. It is the left-right, 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 surrender, repeat of the Christian life. Paul's going you know, to use monotonous language to describe the Christian life. He's going to call it keeping in step with the Spirit. Not flying with the Spirit, but walking with the Spirit. Left, right, left, right, left, right. Jesus is going to say it like this. He's going to say, look, it requires that you deny yourself and take up your cross daily in order to know God. Does it feel monotonous? Yes, walking does. It feels monotonous. Is it offering a painful and tiring? Yes, it often is. I heard a man say, maybe some of you were here at a prayer breakfast last week, a man who spoke said, um, he said, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to pray. 
Isn't that funny? Because really, in some ways, heaven is just, I mean, it's just being with God. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Everyone wants the reward of the journey. But no one wants to walk. No one wants to pray. And man, what I give you this morning is I submit to you, and that's true in my own life. <laughs> it's an amazing thing that God loves you and welcomes you into his presence and, say, and says to you this morning, come to me as you are. It's an amazing thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Come to me as you are. But it is equally amazing that God loves you enough this morning to make you fit for heaven. It is amazing that he loves you enough not to leave you where you find yourself this morning. And he's saying, come with an empty hand. Surrender yourself to me, and I will fit you as a son. I will make you into tr- I will deliver you unto true righteousness and make you all that I've ever called you to be. I will work with you and walk with you on the journey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Um, we do pray, God, that... Um, the message of grace wouldn't get diminished in our lives in either way. Um, Father, that the overwhelming burden that, that, uh, that is required to know you and to be fit for you, Lord, we pray that we would also feel the surrender that is required to hand ourselves over to you, that we might know you and love you and be loved by you, we pray. And so, God, we ask that you would give us humility, make us apprentices. Um, Father, we pray that you would fit us for heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.